0: Listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Our Old Testament reading from today comes from Isaiah 11:1 through 10. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide, by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the, li- the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. Our New Testament reading comes from Matthew 3, 1 through 11. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated.
1: Thanks, Coop. <sighs> all right, a lot of scripture there. Let's pray together for just a minute. Blessed Lord, you caused all holy scripture to be written for our learning. So grant us to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of eternal life, which you've given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. So for the season of Advent, we're doing something that's ancient and rich in that we are not just cherry-picking the scriptures that we like the most or picking a theme that feels like it fits in the holidays and then proof-texting, finding some scripture that sounds like it fits with the theme that we've approved. But we're following the lectionary, which is assigned readings over a course of years that a big group of people, like the whole Anglican Church, for example, follows together. And what's really rich about this practice uh, is is that we're inviting the Scriptures to speak for themselves. We're taking these, what will be four passages of Scripture. You've heard thir- three in the service today. I'm going to add an epistle reading as I work through the sermon. And we're going to take these four passages of Scriptures and listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and trust that these four streams are going to flow together as one river. And these four strands are going to be braided together as one rope. These four voices, these four scriptures are going to be like a quartet that plays a symphony of what God wants to say to us. So as I was listening to the scriptures this week and and praying about uh, what to share with all of you, there was a clear theme that emerged from the readings, and it's a theme that for some people is going to evoke a response that's like, yes, finally, he's talking about it. And for others of you, it's going to be a theme that makes your spidey senses go off. And you're going to be a little bit, oh my gosh, are they drifting into partisan political territory? Uh, Is the church getting, you know, going to get uncomfortable for me? And the theme is justice. Justice. It comes to us from the scriptures. Turn to the person next to you and say, justice is a Bible word. Yeah, justice is a Bible word. Now, the tension or the balancing act between faith and justice, or we could say faith and good works, is a long-term balancing act. It's it's one that's never going to be completely resolved, and it shouldn't be. They remain in forever tension. But instead of keeping these dynamics of faith and justice or faith and works in balance, what most people do is they pick the one that they like the best, which has as much to do with temperament and life experience and even where you're from geographically, maybe the neighborhood that you were raised in, the people that you were raised around. And unfortunately, because of central and the dominating nature of politics in the U.S. of A, and because of our chronic anxiety, the dynamic that we side with tends to form and inform our identity while otherizing the people who choose the opposing value. So we tend to pick one, and it makes us feel good about ourselves. We make ourselves at home with this tribal identity, and we're a little bit suspicious of the people who choose the other one. Now, evangelicals, historically, by evangelical, I mean people who believe in the authority of Scripture, people who want to come to saving faith in Christ. I don't merely mean Republicans. Historically, evangelicals would say that what's really important is that you have faith in your heart. And they would cite things like Romans 10, 9. If you you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What matters is the confession with your mouth and the belief in your heart. And that is true. Now, people on the other side who choose the opposing value, you might call them in a pejorative way progressive or liberal or social justice oriented, might say, yes, it's good to have belief in your heart but if it only exists in your heart, that's insufficient. And they would cite James, and James would say, religion that God our Father finds pure and faultless is taking care of widows and orphans in their distress. And furthermore, cite James saying, if your faith doesn't have works, your faith is dead. And that is also true. And the the polarization between people who choose faith in your heart versus faith in the world are demonstrated through acts of justice, the polarization of these dynamics within the faith community is exacerbated by partisan political differences. Because often the the people who, you know, are in the faith in your heart camp often tend to be of a pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps persuasion, And the faith and works people often tend to be those who think we should leverage government to provide a social safety net for all people, those who might slip through the cracks. Now hear me on this. What I want us to appreciate is that it is our collective anxiety and our tribalism and not the scriptures that compel us to choose one at the expense of the other. I'm going to say it again. It is our anxiety and our political tribalism, but not the scriptures that compel us to choose one and ignore the other. It takes wisdom to hold these two ideas together in tension. It takes maturity to hold together what feel to be at times uh, opposing ideas together. But with God, all things are possible. Jesus came to us from the Father full of grace, And full of truth. And Jesus in himself is 100% God and 100% man. And we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can have faith in our heart expressed in the world. We're meant by the power of the Holy Spirit to do both of these things. And the Spirit who indwells everyone who calls Christ Lord wishes to give us the wisdom and the strength adequate to the task of repenting in our heart and demonstrating it in our lives. This is what John the Baptist was about. When he's out in the wilderness of Judea preaching a message of repentance, he said to those who came and listened to him, bear fruit, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. The catechism of our church asks the question, what does it mean for you to repent? To repent means that I have a change of heart, turning from sinfully serving myself to serving God as I follow Jesus Christ. I need God's help to make this change. On the one hand, repentance is, of course, a change of the heart. On the other hand, John tells us to bear fruit as the evidence of our repentance. Here's the Lucan version of John the Baptist out in the wilderness, Luke 3. So in hearing the preaching of John, the people said, what should we do? John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. Does anybody in here have two shirts? Okay. Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. Anyone who has food should do the same. Now, believe it or not, even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they said, teacher, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Soldiers came and asked him, what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Have a change of heart, turning from sinfully serving myself to serving God as I follow Jesus Christ. And may the fruit of that be works of mercy and works of justice. What does that look like? If you got two shirts, give one to the person who has none. Faith and justice. Uh, do you know the name Esau Macaulay? Esau Macaulay is an author. Uh, he is a New York Times columnist. Uh, he's also a priest, a pastor in C4SO, the Anglican tribe that we're a part of. He's also coming to Tulsa, to Cornerstone, in February to preach. He just wrote a book on uh, the season of Lent, and he's going to preach here the first Sunday of Lent. I can't wait for you to meet Esau. But Esau, in his book, Reading While Black, it's, it's a book on how being a black Christian, like the unique experience of being black, informs the way that we read the Bible. It's a really valuable book. He says, black Christians have always had to hold faith and action together. He says, black Christians have never had the luxury of separating our faith from political action. Due to the era in which it was born, the black church found it necessary to protest a policy put in place by the state slavery. When Frederick Douglass asked his famous question, What to a slave is the Fourth of July? He didn't simply ask a question about the United States of America. He asked a question about American Christianity. And then here he quotes Frederick Douglass. What to the American slave is your Fourth of July? He's writing in the 18th century. I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty and unholy license, your national greatness swell vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless, your denunciation of tyrants brass-fronted impudence, your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery, your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings with all your religious parade and solemnity are to him mere bombast fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy, a thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of tyrants. Macaulay again. By highlighting the hypocrisy of religious celebrations of freedom while enslaving others, Douglass called upon American Christians to live out their faith by establishing a truly equal and free society. Faith and works, a transformed heart, and a transformed way of being in the world. Both of these things matter to God. If you think that Douglas is a bit extreme in his language, go and read the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 58. As we read the whole witness of Scripture, we see how the Scriptures harmonize in their insistence on practical justice. Psalm 72, which Noel read earlier, uh, speaks of the royal son of God who judges people in righteousness and brings justice justice to those who are afflicted. The needy under the rule of the royal son of God are protected and freed from their oppressor. The weak receive pity and those who suffer violence are rescued. In Isaiah, the first passage that Chris read, foresaw a day... When someone, like a shoot from the stump of Jesse, someone from the family line of David, would come, it would be the messianic son of David. And with righteousness or justice, those two words are basically the same thing in the Old and New Testaments. With righteousness or with justice, the Messiah would judge the needy. And the result of the reign of the son of David would be that the wolf and the lamb and the calf and the lion and the cow and the bear will coexist peacefully. And a kid can put their hand in an adder's nest, a really poisonous snake, and be unharmed. And the prophet envisions a day when the Messiah comes where people will neither harm nor destroy on Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. And a culture will truly be built on justice and righteousness. Okay, this is, this is really strong. This is really good. Listen carefully. What's critical for us is to understand is that this vision of what constitutes a just society and therefore how we should understand and do justice is built upon the person, works, and words of the shoot from the stump of Jesse, that is, Jesus the Messiah. Our vision of what it looks like to do biblical justice, justice is a Bible word, comes from our understanding of the character of Jesus the Messiah. Listen again to Isaiah. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And when Messiah comes, he will not judge by what he sees or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with justice, with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. This pay attention to the imagery here. He will strike the earth, not with a weapon, but with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around His waste. The mission of the Messiah in motivation and means and ends flows from the wisdom and understanding and the fear of God. To understand the biblical vision of justice, we must understand the mission of the Messiah in His motivation, in His means and in His ends flows from the wisdom and understanding and fear of God. What motivates Jesus' mission of justice? It's the wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and fear of the Lord. By what means will Jesus execute justice on the earth? In accordance with the wisdom and understanding and guidance and counsel and strength and fear of the Lord. He he gives us a picture. The weapon he uses, it will be words, it will not be swords. It's through persuasion, not through coercion. And what are the ends of his mission? The ends or the goals of his mission will be the flourishing of the vulnerable, where children can play in safety and people do not have to be afraid. And verse 9 says, And the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Now, why does it matter to put such a fine point on all of this? Do you remember the scene in The Princess Bride? I can't remember the character. The guy who says, inconceivable. What's his name? Anybody know? Vicini. Thank you. Thank you. I was thinking of the actor, but Vicini, it works. He's always saying, inconceivable. And Inigo Montoya, you know, Inigo, my, my name is Enigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. That guy. He says, you keep using this word. I do not think it means what you think it means. When modern people say justice, as a Christian and as a person who reads the Bible, I'm like, I don't think that means what you think it means. When modern people say justice, that often means liberation from any externally imposed ideology or theology that might affect how I think about my self-expression or my most intimate relationships or my, my general life choices. Justice is understood to be liberation from the idea that there is a right or a wrong, a good and a pure and a beautiful, that there are moral authorities to whom we're accountable. And so when I say the word justice, some may be inclined to put one definition of it that doesn't flow from the wisdom and instruction and counsel and might and fear of the Lord we find in Jesus the Messiah, if you don't have your head on right, you could read passages like what we've read and apply your own ideas of justice and think that God is on board, ready to put his rubber stamp on any and all of our moral preferences. Or it could actually go the other way, that we could think that justice means imposing God's moral authority using force or coercion on other people. And that also falls short. I don't think it means what you think it means. The mission of justice and the definition and the vision of justice that comes from Jesus the Messiah is roots, shoots, and fruits planted in the soil of the fear of God, the wisdom of God, the knowledge of God, the vision of true peace and flourishing that comes from God. And it's God's vision of justice and not our own that motivates and defines the means and the ends of the actions that we ought to take in the world. And as our hearts are trained and like a garden cultivated with the the seed of God's word planted in us, they're meant to bear fruit in works of mercy and justice, and mercy and justice as defined by Jesus, the Messiah. And as our hearts are trained and taught to love God, the, the, the Lord desires for us to love our neighbors. And these are almost always going to be in ways that are small in ways that are simple, and more often than not, in ways that are secret. Paul said this in Romans chapter 13. This comes from Peterson's message version. He says, Those of us who are strong and able in the faith need to step in and lend a hand to those who falter and not just do what is most convenient for us. Another sermon for another time convenience is the enemy of every part of our lives. Emily Odom at some point is going to write a book on the value of an inconvenient life. Paul says, don't just do what is most convenient for us. Strength is for service, not for status. Each one of us needs to look after the good of the people around us, asking, how can I help? that's exactly what Jesus did. He didn't make it easy for himself by avoiding people's troubles, but he waited right in and helped out. I took on the troubles of the troubled, is the way Scripture puts it. And even if it was written in Scripture long ago, you can be sure that it's written for us today. God wants the combination of his steady, constant calling and warm personal counsel in Scripture to come to characterize us And even if it was written in Scripture long ago, you can be sure it's written for us. God wants the... Did I already read this part? (laughs) Oh, well. He wants to keep us alert for whatever God's going to do next. So may our dependably steady and warmly personal God develop maturity in you so that you get along with each other as well as Jesus gets along with us all. And then if we do that, we'll be a choir. Not our voices only, but our very lives singing in harmony in a stunning anthem to the God and Father of our Master and Messiah, Jesus. Where are the needy oppressed? In your neighborhood, in our city, in the economic food chain. Where do the poor suffer? In what ways is God's name not being honored? Where in our world do we find image bearers, men and women created in God's image, being exploited? In what ways are we complicit in systems of injustice? And then just really simply, where can we help? God has uniquely positioned you in the world with the people that you're around. He said, this was the best place you could be to become more like Jesus. God has uniquely positioned you and me and our church in the city of Tulsa to bear a fruit of mercy and justice in keeping with the repentance that is true in our hearts as we confess Jesus Christ as Lord of our lives. My prayer is that all of our action, motivated by love and fear of the Lord, to act justly, To love mercy and to walk humbly with God will be like a foretaste of what will happen when Christ returns in glory and he fulfills this uh, this vision of Isaiah. And he fulfills the vision of David in the Psalms to judge the needy with equity and to establish peace so that they will neither harm nor destroy. But all of the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Every action that you and I do in the name of Jesus, extending mercy and doing justice, is for the world a foretaste of what will happen when Christ returns to do his ultimate work to renew and restore all things. May God give us courage and wisdom and power adequate to the task of being unsatisfied with a faith that is merely in our hearts but is not in our world. And may we be a part of extending the kindness and the love of God our Savior, Jesus Christ.